Frustration is a bit of an occupational hazard if you're a preacher. Um, you get to the end of a book like Galatians and you are so painfully aware that you have only scratched the surface. Um, and that's compounded by the fact that we've done Galatians so, so quickly. Uh, we only started it at the start of September. Uh, it's only the end of November and we finished it already. It's like, my goodness, and we've so, such a, a, a superficial treatment. And I, I kind of want to apologize for it. Um, although I have to say, we'll spend about the same number of weeks doing Judges in the new year, and that's 21 chapters, so we're really going to be flying through that. Um, but it, even, even, even chapter 6, just this one chapter before us um, tonight, there are so many things that uh, if we were really taking our time, we'd, we'd, we'd linger over. Um, th- this phrase, for example, circumcision of the flesh, is a phrase that goes right back to Deuteronomy. Um, and actually the concept even earlier than that, but you know, there's, there's a real thing between people, uh, and you, you hear this a lot in the prophets as well, the, the, the distinction between being circumcised in the flesh and having your heart circumcised and, and what's going on with that. Or, or, or why in Galatians 6 does Paul call the church the Israel of God? Uh, what's going on with that? Um, what does that say? Oh, see, there's so many things that we, that we could get into um, that we're just not going to be able to. So I'm going to stop talking about all the things we can't get into. I'm going to pray and we'll look at the things we can get into uh, tonight. But I, I really, you know, please don't, you know, just there's, there's so much more in Galatians than we've been able to, to, to tease out even over these last two or three months. So please, please keep coming back to it. And um, working with this book and asking the Lord to speak to you, to you through it. But Father, tonight we, we have, in a sense, just one thread that runs through chapter six that we're going to be able to, to kind of like tease out and, and hold up and consider together. And so Lord, as we do that, I pray, oh Lord, I pray for your spirit to be at work speaking through your word to your people tonight. Father, we're so, Lord, we're so unsure of the life that you've called us to as individuals and as a church. And I pray that tonight you would be building into us a vision for what it means for us to have fellowship together as the people of God. What it means for us to work together and worship together and journey together as we, as we strive to know more fully your grace and your mercy and your compassion to us in the Lord Jesus. So please be with us and help us as we work our way through this chapter this evening. We ask it in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Galatians. Hopefully you've got the, the sense of the chasm um, that, that there is in Paul's thinking between authentic, genuine, uh, life-giving, freedom-giving Christianity that is, that is born out of the grace of God, out of His love and His mercy and His compassion. Um, you've got a sense of that and how different how completely different. It's just like 
from from this this other thing that can look very like Christianity um, you know, at, at first glance, but is actually a completely different kind of religion, a completely different way of thinking about God, a completely different way of relating to God um, that, that we've been calling legalism. And it's not that, you know, legalism is just, well, it's kind of Christianity that's just got a bit distorted or a bit warped. All right, for Paul, it's a, it's a fundamentally different religion and it's mutually exclusive from authentic Christianity. So, in so far as you are functioning as a legalist, you are being alienated from Christ. You're being cut off from grace. All right, and we've, we've seen over the last few weeks just how stark the contrast is between these two ways of seeking to relate uh, to God. Now, one of Paul's big issues with, um, with legalism as a kind of, as a religious outlook, as a way of trying to engage with God, is just how small-minded it is. How trivial it is. You know, it's just got a, 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 a pathetically impoverished idea of the glory and the holiness of God and of the seriousness of sin and of Jesus and, and the reality of his, his death and what he is actually accomplishing in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. You know, if you're a legalist, you know, religion is it's all so simple in a way. You, you know, there's a few rituals, there's a few rules and, and you just need to tick the boxes. You just need to keep the rules. You need to follow the, the, the rituals and everything's probably going to be okay. And Paul's like, oh man, you gotta understand the whole thing. It's, it's so much bigger than all of this. It's so much bigger. You know, sin is such, so much deeper a problem and the glory of God is so much greater than you can imagine. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is far more than just kind of you know, asking you to keep a few moral rules and, and, and do a few rituals and stuff. Paul's like, look, seriously, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What counts is that you are, you know, that, that in the cross you are, you are crucified with Christ and you are dead to this world. And this world is dead to us. We've been cut off as it were, from this world and, and from the, the fall and from the curse and from the condemnation. We've been cut off from the demonic realities that sort of spiritually impregnate this world and dominate it. We've been cut off from the slavery. We've been cut off from the domination of sin. And we've been evacuated from all of that through the death, the resurrection of Christ. We've been clothed in his life and in his righteousness. We've been adopted into this, this, the life of God and we've been caught up into what Jesus is doing to bring about a whole new reality. What Jesus calls the renewal of all things. The life of God is suddenly opened to us in a way that it never was before. You see how different that is from, well, here's a few rules, you need to keep them. You know, here's a few religious rituals, you need to go through that. It's like, Paul's like, buddy, you've got no idea. Who cares about the rules? Who cares about the rituals? What matters is, are you a part of this new creation that God is 
bringing about in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this legalism, it's so pathetic. It, it has no power to liberate you from sin and death. It has no power to free you from those demonic, oppressive forces. It's weak. It's miserable. It's hopeless. It has no power to change us. No power to bring us back into connection with the reality of God. If you're a legalist, man, life is so tragic. If you remember the whole bin lid thing, we could just, your life is all about just with your, you know, your, the strength of your will and your resolve, you're going to, to keep a lid on all the sin and all the muck that's in our heart and mind and life. And, you know, we're going to keep the lid on and nobody's going to know about that and we're going to, be good people, and we're going to be religious people, and we're going to prove to God and prove to the church what great people we are. And of course, we can't, because underneath that lid, nothing's changing. It's just bubbling away, and the pressure's building, and eventually, the reality of who and what we are floods out, whether we want it to or not. And at the very point where we need the confidence in God's love for us in Christ. The very point where we need to be so secure in God's grace. That's the very point when we, it's, it's all robbed from us. Because if we're legalists, God's love, God's grace, it, it depends on me being a good enough person. And at this moment, I know I'm not a good person. You know, my sin is just it's all out there for everyone to see. It's out of control. I've had to confront the fact that I'm no different from what I've ever been. And so the one thing I need is assurance of God's love for me and God's grace to me. And that is the one thing I can never have. And Paul's just like, man, seriously, that's rubbish. You don't want to live like that. Why, why would anybody want a religious experience that's like that? And yet... And yet, here we have this church, or this group of churches in Galatia. And, and that's exactly what's going on. They have they've given up on the freedom that they knew in Christ, the grace that they had experienced in Christ. They, they're walking away from their adoption. They're walking away from their fellowship. And they're walking away from their experience of the Spirit of God in their midst. And they are jumping tracks. And they are going back into, into this weak, powerless bondage of a religion. And yet, we've got to, we've got to understand how, how easy, we think about this a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? how easy it is, even as Christians, because these Galatians are Christians. Paul calls them brothers and sisters. He knows they are saved. And yet, this church that has been pastored by Paul, was planted by Paul, you know, this church that has known the truth, the reality of God through the gospel. This church is jumping tracks and is heading back into this legalistic world. Right? And, and the reason Galatians is in the Bible is because God knows this is a perennial temptation. For us as Christians, for us as a church, the temptation to jump tracks, the, 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 to ease back into a legalistic way of thinking is almost... Well, it's, it's a constant thing. It's a constant thing. I will be stunned if over the last few weeks you have not at some point 
had to face up to the fact that there are aspects of your relationship with God that are functioning legalistically. I know that's been something I've had to navigate as I've been going through Galatians. I've just been thinking, my goodness, yeah, this thing I'm preaching about, this is me! I'm doing this! You know, and we've been working in uh, fuel over the last couple of weeks looking at some of this stuff. And um, they've had the honesty to talk about and, and articulate their sense of, of the way in which legalism shapes their religion, shapes their faith in God. And I, I would be quietly confident that all of us, if we've, if we've been listening, if we've been paying attention, we've had to face up to the fact that this is, this is, not, this is not an academic issue for us. This, this impinges constantly on our relationship with God and on our relationship with one another as a church. And so the big question is, given that this is, you know, in a sense we're under siege on this, all right? This is something that is just a constant threat. Uh, and it's something that we are very, very susceptible to. The big question is, how do we guard against it? How do we make sure that as a church, we don't do what the Galatians have done? How do we make sure that as Christians, we don't do what the Galatians have done? How do we make sure, like, what's our strategy? What's our defensive strategy against this temptation? How do we make sure that we stay rooted in the grace, in the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion of God to us in Christ. How do we guard ourselves? Well, I want to suggest to you that in one of the one of the threads that runs through Galatians six is Paul is is um, showing us that, that God's strategy or the strategy that in His wisdom God has built into the life of uh, of the church. Okay, um, and actually there are there are two strands to it that are overlapping and that sort of intertwine with each other. Okay? So this is it. Uh, we're coming to the end of Galatians. Oh, it's scary stuff. It's, it's clearly a danger. Um, how do we guard against it? Well, I think this is Paul's answer. And it's going to depress you because the first strategy is, is, about, um, is about the pastor <laughs> or, or the priest or the elder or the minister or the preacher or whatever you want to call that role. Um, please, please don't call me father. Ever, though. No, all right? Seriously. Unless you are actually my son. Uh, in which case, you, you can call me father. None of the rest of you can call me father. All right? But you know, pr- I'm pr- I pretty much answer to anything. I used to be a chaplain in Brixton Prison. Some of the stuff I was called there, you know, I can answer to it all. Um, but whatever the, the vocabulary that we use, this, the role of those who are called by God into the life of the church and who bear responsibility, we were thinking about this this morning, bear responsibility for, for preaching and teaching. 
those who between them carry this privilege within the life of the church, who whether they are standing at the front of services or events or whether they are leading Bible studies in home groups or in youth groups or in children's groups, the people who are involved in teaching the scriptures. Right? This is God's strategy for keeping a church on track. Not many of you, says James, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why? Because of the influence that a preacher has in the life of a church. This is so important to understand. When Jesus uh, ascends, read about this in Ephesians 4, when Jesus ascends, one of the first things he does is he puts into the life of the church those who have responsibility to proclaim the word of God. And he has structured the, the life of church in a way that gives uh, preachers, teachers, incredible influence in the life of a church. It's, it's, not, it's not set in stone, but it's, generally speaking, where a pastor goes, where a preacher goes, the church will go. We've seen it in Galatians, when Paul was pastoring the church at Galatia. When, when this, this guy who, who really got grace and understood it and taught to that and called people consistently to Christ, to the grace of Christ, to the love of Christ, to the mercy of Christ. When Paul was pastor of the church, the church at Galatia was a church rooted in grace and a church that knew the life of the Spirit in their midst. When legalists got into positions of pastoral responsibility, when legalists started to teach what happened to the church, it goes down the route of legalism. Right? Pastors, for better or for worse, and often both, uh, have huge impact on the lives of congregations. A good pastor can lead a church into Christ and into spiritual maturity. A bad pastor will lead a church away from Christ. And we're not just talking about an organization or an institution. It's people, isn't it? People. People are either led into Christ by a good pastoral ministry team, a good preaching team, who will consistently hold Jesus out to them and call them into the grace of Christ. You know, or, or people will be damaged and hurt by legalistic preachers who will bully and intimidate and harass them. Right? And Paul has, is giving us in Galatians 6 a, a number of ways of working out, as it were, um, who do we want to be teaching us? Who do we want to be leading us? Um, and and he, he's warning the, the, the church at Galatia how to recognize bad pastors 
I feel like I should have a, t- a t-shirt with bad pastor on it. Do you know what I mean? Um, all right, so here's the first thing, is they are false teachers. They're false teachers. They, they teach. They stand, as it were, at the front of church. They get into, into home groups. They're leading home groups. But what they are teaching is wrong. Okay, it's not just that they've got a slightly different perspective, or it's not just that, you know, that they're, they're uh, coming at something from a slightly different angle. What they are teaching about God, what they're teaching about Jesus, what they're ta- teaching about the Spirit, what they're teaching about what it means to be a Christian, how to become a Christian, how to live as a Christian, what they're teaching is false. It doesn't line up with the Bible. It doesn't correspond with reality. Right? And we just need to recognize that there are boundaries. And if you go beyond that, what you teach is just wrong. And it, as, as Christians, we should be on our guard against this. You know, the, the, the Bereans who were of noble character and who searched the Scriptures to see if what even Paul, an apostle, was saying was true. We need to be constantly evaluating and critically engaging with what's coming to us from the front of church, what's coming to us in our home groups. Am I being taught truth? Right? Something else that they're doing, though, is they're abusing the church. All right? False, t- bad, bad preachers, bad pastors will abuse the church. All right? These guys at Galatia, are they about building up the church? Are they about exalting Christ? Are they about caring for and loving and leading the people so that they mature spiritually? And what we read in Galatians 6 is no. All right, these guys, they only care about themselves. They only care about making a name for themselves. They only care about their reputation. Right? They want to impress people. That's what their agenda is. They, they don't care about whether you're actually growing as a Christian or not. All they care about is, is everybody looking at me and thinking I'm amazing? Right? And that shapes how they lead the church. They're not about doing what is good or, or right or true. They're about doing what, what will look good. What will impress people? You know, they, they want the church to grow. But not because that means people are coming to Christ. It's so that they can stand up and go, Hey guys, look at me. I'm a pastor of a really big church. This might shock you, but I, have to, I go to quite a lot of gatherings in different ways where uh, church leaders um, are getting together for training or, or for networking or whatever. And um, it, would, it, would, it would disturb you to know how often the question of how big your church is gets addressed. And, and the way in which there's this sort of, oh, you know, oh, well, I've got a church this big and they've got a church that's only that big. But over here is this guy and he's got this massive mega church thing. And it's really tragic, isn't it? It's really tragic. 
but a legalistic pastor, a bad pastor will drive a church. You've got to do more and more and more and more. And what's driving that is not a healthy desire to see people grow or to see a church grow or to see people becoming Christians. What's driving it is their insecurity and their, their desire to impress people and to be able to stand up and go, look at me. Look at this great church that I'm leading. Remember back in Galatians 3, we saw how insecure legalists are and how dangerous it is when somebody who is insecure gets into a position of pastoral leadership in a church. Because I, I, <laughs> hypothetically, if it was me, obviously, somebody I know, would just be kind of constantly needing you to affirm them and tell them how brilliant. I need you to bolster my fragile ego. Doesn't matter to me whether you've become a Christian or not, so much as that you understand that you became a Christian because of me. It doesn't matter whether you're understanding the Bible or not. What matters is you know that it's because of me. I want to be able to boast about you. I want to be able to use you to make me look good. I want you to be a good church. But only because that would mean that everybody would know I was a good pastor. And that will shape how they teach. And how they lead. And they're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. You know, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised. You know... You need to do this with your time and with your money and with your relationships. And these are the rules you need to keep. And this is how you have to live. And this is what you need to do in church. And these are the rituals that you need to keep. But if you look at them themselves, actually, they're not, do, they're not doing that stuff any more than anybody else is. There's this kind of breakdown in integrity, this huge disconnect between how they're living themselves and what they're telling other people they should do. Now, like, I don't want to put an impossible burden on pastors, um, partly because I am one. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not, I don't think Paul's saying there has to be like perfection in the life of those who stand at the front of a church and teach. But you will know whether you'll know whether there's a connection between life and teaching. You'll know if the, if the pastor is preaching to themselves first. You'll know if the pastor is at least looking in the right direction. Now, a, a pastor, a good preacher, will always preach beyond their own experience. Because they're teaching the Bible. And, and in a sense, we are all like under the Scriptures and we're all working towards what, what the Bible is calling us to. So, you know, we will always preach beyond where we've got to in terms of actually realizing what we're, what we're teaching. But you'll know if we're on the same path, right? So you have the, these bad preachers, these bad pastors who are 
they, they, they're false teachers. They teach things that are not true. They're abusive, concerned about their own reputation, concerned about their own position, their own importance, their recognition. They're hypocrites and they're cowards. They're cowards. They want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And that will affect what they are prepared to teach or not teach. There will be people who will not say certain things because of the conflict and the confrontation that will come as a result. They will change the message. Not because that's what they think the Bible says, but because they don't want to teach what they know the Bible does say. Because they know that if, if, if I teach this, people are going to be angry. People are going to be hostile. No matter how gentle I am, no matter how nuanced I am, no matter how careful I am, no matter how much people know this comes out of a heart of love and concern, if I teach this, this is going to come back to bite me. So I won't teach it. And Paul's saying, look, you do not want that sort of person leading a church. Because they will not challenge. They will not confront because they're afraid. They're afraid of conflict and hostility and gossip and slander. They'll change what they're saying in order to try to keep everybody happy all the time. False teachers abusing the church using the church to bolster their own ego, to build up their own reputation and sense of importance. Hypocrites, cowards. You don't want someone like that pastoring a church, teaching a church, leading a church. So what do we want? First of all, you will want someone who will faithfully and doggedly and stubbornly instruct you in the Scriptures. This is absolutely axiomatic. I was preaching this morning on how Jesus makes himself known to us through the teaching of the scriptures and was talking about when Paul writes to Timothy and calls Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of the scriptures and to preaching and teaching. How he is to do that, to be prepared in season and out of season. When it's, when it's popular, when it's not. When people want to listen, when they don't. Devoted to preaching, teaching, reading the Scriptures. 
The church receives instruction in the Word of God from those whom God has called to teach and preach. What I find really interesting about this is that Galatians is, as far as we can tell, one of the first letters written in what we now call the New Testament. It's one of the earliest writings of the New Testament. And already there is this idea that those who instruct should be set apart for that and supported in that financially, amongst other things, by the church so that they can give themselves to that role in an uncommon way. This is one of the earliest things that's happening in the church is they're thinking, how can we free up these people so that they can give themselves to the study of scriptures, devote themselves to preaching and teaching and reading the word of God? How do you judge whether someone's a good or bad pastor? How do you judge ministry? How do you judge the life of a church? How do you judge a preaching team or a leadership team? One of the key questions is, am I being instructed from the Scriptures? Uh, Can I see that these are people who, you know, they're preaching first to themselves and they are prepared to say what the Bible says. They don't flinch. They don't bottle it. They don't back down. Second thing, they are focused on Christ and the cross. And care only about people being caught up into the drama of the cross. Yes, Paul writes as well when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know that bit where he goes... um, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. See, that's, that, and that's the anthem of Paul's preaching life. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what you do not want in a pastor is someone who boasts in themselves. Right? You might think you do. You might think that you want someone who will stand up at the front of church and say, let me tell you about my spiritual experiences. Let me tell you about my discipleship. Let me tell you about what goes on in my heart. Let me tell you about my love for Jesus. Let me tell you about what I'm like as a Christian so that you can be like me. You can see me and be impressed by me. No. No, I really don't think you want that. I think you want someone who week after week stands up and says, look at Jesus. Look at Christ. See what He has done. Go to Him. Trust Him. Know Him. If you have a pastor who is doing that, if everyone on the preaching team 
in your church is standing up and telling you, go to Christ. Go to Christ crucified. Taste of His love, His mercy, His grace that is poured out to you in the death of Jesus. Then that's probably the best way of guarding a church against legalism, isn't it? Because just week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we're being taken back to the centerpiece of grace. And you want someone who's got courage. Someone who is willing to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to the Scriptures, even when it will cost them. You know, in Acts chapter 20, And verse 23, um, Paul tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, warns Paul that in every city there is prison and hardships facing him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was kind of an itinerant evangelistic preacher and I was approaching a city and the Holy Spirit said, "Um, hardship and prison is waiting for you in that city, I would take that as God telling me to go somewhere else. Not Paul. You see, for Paul, when the Spirit is telling him that when you go into the city, there will be persecution. There will be riots. You will be stoned. You will be arrested and beaten. Paul's response is, Okay, Lord. Thanks for the warning. Now, please, will you sustain me in that? And then he goes into that city and he is faithful in proclaiming Christ Jesus and him crucified, knowing that there will be hostility, knowing that there will be conflict, knowing that there will be suffering, knowing that there will be confrontation, but knowing that people still need to hear about Jesus and his grace. That's what you want. Someone who will teach the truth even when they know that there will be anger and pushback. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying you want a warmonger. You know, somebody who's out for a fight and he's, you know, I'm coming for you. I said, you don't want somebody like that. You do want someone who will be faithful and who will teach the Scriptures faithfully and who will teach Christ faithfully even when they suspect that there will be hostility as a result. You want somebody who will do it as gently as they can. You want somebody who will do it patiently. You want somebody who will do it lovingly, out of a heart of love for the church. But you want the the person who who will say the hard things. And who will endure the hostility and the pain that comes. So that's the first strategy that God puts in the life of the church to guard us against legalism. It is the role of the pastor, the preaching team, the ministry team, the elders of the church. But the second is, the first is the pastor's responsibility. 
The second is the congregation's responsibility. And it's hard for us to hold these two things in the right balance. Some churches, you know, I was going to talk about the priesthood of all believers, but I had a right crack at that whole idea on a Friday on Friday night at Deep Church. But in some churches, they kind of have that rhetoric. Oh, it's the priesthood of all believers. And, well, yeah, we don't think anybody should be set apart for this or that anybody should have authority in the life of the church. And so everyone's on a level. And, and the, kind of the, the, the part of God's strategy that it's about the pastor, that gets really undermined. Or there are other churches... And, and Anglican churches probably tend more to this side of things, um, where, you know, everything is about the, everything's about the vicar. You know, the vicar does everything. And the congregation just come to church and get communion and stuff. Alright, and, and actually we need to say, no, these two things need to be side by side. There, there is pastoral responsibility. There is a leadership called into the life of a church. And they have responsibility to, to, to lead the church and to teach the church, to pastor the church, to minister to the church. But there is also within the life of a congregation a kind of mutual responsibility that we have for one another. So Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Right? If you are a Christian, right? if you are somebody who knows the Spirit of God living in you, if you live by the Spirit, then you have a responsibility to restore others in the church who are caught in sin. None of us can wash our hands and walk away if we live by the Spirit. If you don't live by the Spirit, then we've got a whole other conversation we need to have. But if you are a Christian, then you have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to be involved. Not, not so that you can parade your self-righteousness. Oh, let me come along and help you because I'm a much better Christian than you are. Not, not, not so that you can do that, but so that you can restore someone. Restore them to grace. Restore them to God's mercy. Restore them to God's love. Because sin robs you of all of that. But, says Paul, watch out. Watch out or you also may be tempted. Now, what's Paul got going on here? Well, it might be that when you get too close to the sin that this person's involved in, that, that you're actually tempted to join them in that sin. It might be that. But I want to suggest to you it, 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 something else might be going on here. Because here's, think about it. Think about what's going on. If you see in someone else's life, you see a pattern of sin that is developing and that is not being dealt with, and you, you challenge that, uh, then it's possible, it is possible that that person will be so thankful. And that they will be like, you know, I, I didn't see that. 
Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to identify this and to come alongside me and to, to point my sin out because now I can repent of it. Will you please walk with me through repentance and restoration? It's possible that that's how someone will respond. In which case, what's the temptation that you face? Pride? <laughs> Look at me. Look what I just did. This is brilliant. This person's... Oh, I'm amazing. More likely, however, <laughs> more likely, you get involved in someone's life and you, you put your finger on, on sin that is developing. More likely, what you will meet with is anger and defensiveness and self-justification and counter-allegation. Who are you to point a finger? Have you looked in the mirror recently? You want to really get into this game of of calling out each other's sin? Because i got a long list here all about you, buddy. That's more likely the reaction. Who do you think you are to judge me? And I'll tell you something else. If it stays just between the two of you, you've got away lightly. Because what's more likely to happen is I'm going to go and get my people around me and say, do you know what they just did? Yeah, and, and there'll be gossip and there'll be slander and we'll, we'll get on like the computer and social media and on the phone or whatever, whatever communication you engage with and depending where you are in the generational spectrum. You will get out and you will make sure that your people, your friends know what a, what a horrible person this, this, other folk, this other person is because they've dared to get into your life and to do actually what the Bible tells them to do. And people who you didn't even know were in the church will come up to you and be like, who do you think you are talking to so-and-so like that? And what's the temptation you face then? Discouragement? Despair? Anger? Maybe now you want to get your own back. Well, it's like if they're going to go and talk to their people, I'm going to go and make sure I get my story out to my people. And now we've got division and factions in the life of the church. You want to take Galatians 6.1 and put it into practice. I'll tell you now, you're walking onto a spiritual minefield. This can go wrong. In so many ways. And there is a raft of temptation out there. And I think if we stop and think about it for even a few moments, we'll, we know that. So, so what do we do? Well, we just ignore Galatians 6.1 and it's the vicar's job. It's the vicar's responsibility. They can deal with it. No. No. If you live by the Spirit... You have a responsibility to restore gently those who are caught in sin. So there is, a, there is pastoral responsibility. But this, the other side of the coin is that there is this mutual congregational responsibility that we have for one another simply because we are Christians. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Actually, it turns out that I am. Now, within that, oh, right. Okay, very quickly. Within that, um, we actually, we have responsibility ourselves. You know, each of us, each of us needs to take responsibility at some level for our own spiritual well-being. Uh, verse 5, Paul says, each of us carries our own load. And I think this is what he's talking about. At the end of the day, you know, yeah, there are pastors, and yes, there's a church family, but I, I, there's just a profound sense in which I stand before Jesus alone. And, you know, if, if I'm not, if I'm not attending the worshipping life of the church, if I'm not in a fellowship group, if I'm not praying with people, if I don't have the fellowship with people that allows them to get close enough to me to see what's going on in my life and that allows them to come into my life to, to challenge and to restore me gently, if I'm not sowing to the Spirit, if I'm sowing to the flesh instead, if I'm not pursuing Christ if I am not laboring, as it were, to immerse myself in the grace of Jesus, if I am not allowing myself to be instructed in the world, in the Word, then when I reap destruction, I can't blame the church. I can't blame the pastor. In this sense, I must carry my own responsibility for my relationship with God. Although we do that within the context of the fellowship of the church and under the leadership of a team of elders, preachers, and pastors. So look, this is, you know, Galatians 6 is, is that's as much as I'm going to say on Galatians 6. That's as much as I'm going to say on the whole book of Galatians. But my heart is that, that as we've gone through this book, we've, we've begun to feel the danger, the urgency that there is around this issue. And my, my prayer has been that we would recognize where this is, this legalism is, is lurking within our own hearts, within our own relationship with God, within our relationship with the church. And that as we've gone through Galatians, the Spirit has been at work just coaxing you to repentance and to learn a different way. And I want to say that we, we, will, keep, we will keep making mistakes. All right? In my own relationship with God, this, this temptation just keeps coming. And there are times when, without even realizing it, I'm going to slide into it. I'm going to keep getting it wrong. And, and if we get involved in each other's lives in the way that Paul's suggesting we should in Galatians 6, we're probably going to get that wrong sometimes as well. And if we're legalists, getting it wrong is really bad. If we're legalists, if we get it wrong, that's game over. So lucky for you that we're not. Lucky for you, we're an option A church, remember? We are a church that celebrates Christ and His grace and His mercy to you. And so, may the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, my brothers and sisters.
And all God's people said,